Will you join me as we pray together? Continue, Lord Jesus, to teach us the truth of what we just sung. I thank you that Karen is able to stand up here and testify out of her own personal experience. Thank you for reminding us that it is a journey and a process we are on and we are all at different points in that journey of, of moving away from our trust in things that promise but cannot deliver to the one God who promises and delivers because he is faithful. And so, Father, for those of us who may have not yet even begun that journey or even aware that they need to, to those who have been traveling for a long time, you know each of our hearts, you know what we need to hear. We pray that through your Spirit you will give us the ability to hear your voice, to be able to recognize it as yours, to experience it both as comfort and as exhortation, and then, Father, to continue to look to you for the strength to respond in obedience and trust in Jesus' name. The year was 1945, the war was over, and life was slowly returning to normal. And in North America, that meant the resumption of baseball as well. And uh, Joe DiMaggio was probably one of the Yankee great players. He's known for his 56-game hitting streak that nobody's even come close to in in the 40, 60 years since that time. And so he came with his five-year-old son, Joe Jr., and kind of sneaked his way into Yankee Stadium to settle down in the mezzanine before he would join his team. When somebody nearby recognized him and they began to say Joe and then somebody else recognized him and soon that recognition spread and the entire stadium was shouting Joe, Joe, Joe DiMaggio. Obviously deeply moved, he looked down at his son to see if he was taking it all in. And Joe Jr. looks at him and says, Daddy, they all know me. (laughs) What that boy did innocently, we learned last week, was our fundamental problem in life. The glory that belongs to God and God alone, our Father, we have taken for ourselves and transferred it to created things. Specifically, we learned that to give glory to God or to trust Him means to believe that God and God alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart and being abiding meaning to our lives, and therefore to adjust life's priorities to get as much of God as we can, and instead we have transferred that trust to created things, whether human beings or otherwise, and instead chosen to trust that they will satisfy the longings of our heart, and therefore adjust our lives to get as much of that, whatever that is, that we can. This is why we learned that the first of the Ten Commandments was, you will have no other gods. Because this is the fundamental shape in which sin enters into this world. We learned that it was also the first commandment because we actually break every other commandment because we are really breaking the first commandment. It is a violation of the first commandment that fuels the breaking of every other commandment. And then finally we learned that God, when He says He is jealous and therefore will not tolerate worship of something else, We learned that that jealousy was not like human jealousy. He is not jealous of us as if he wants something from us. He is jealous for us. Because in refusing to worship him and to worship created things, we are the ones who stand to lose. So that's why we finished last week. As we continue this series on Canadian Idols, what are you chasing after? I want to take this whole sermon just to amplify that for us. What is it where we stand to gain that God wants to give us when we worship Him? And what is it that we lose instead? As a continual motivation to make that journey, to uproot those idols that we discovered last week and move in the direction of God. 
And for that I want to take you to the same portion of scripture that Karen took us to, to the Psalms. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Psalms are a part of the Old Testament, uh, which are like a hymn book. They are poetry set to music, and God's people, the nation of Israel, use those songs uh, to express a wide gamut of human emotion to God, uh, from praise to thanksgiving to lamentation to individual and community grieving and celebration, all of that is found in the Psalms. And I want to focus on one of those Psalms, uh, 115. It says this, Our God is in heaven, He does whatever pleases Him, but their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, Noses but they cannot smell, they have hands but cannot feel, feet but that, that they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. He's obviously contrasting the idols in those nations which were literal idols made with human features. And so he is kind of stating the obvious, but there's much more to it than that. Because in stressing in this passage, because it was a passage for those who did not worship idols, who worshipped the living God. What is it doing there? It is, I believe, to drive home to them by contrast the fact that what the idols cannot do, God can. He has a mouth and can speak. He has ears and can hear. He can eyes and he can see. He has a nose that can smell. He has hands that can feel and he has feet that can walk. Now, this doesn't mean he actually looks like us. That would again to go, be, go back to idolatry. But what do these things mean for us in practice? In understanding and unpacking them, and I can only give you some idea of what it is, we see the richness of what God wants to give to us, what he wants to be for us. That's why he wants us to worship him. First of all, God has a mouth and can speak. What does that mean? It means that we serve a God who is not silent. You know, life is chaotic, life is perplexing, life is complex. And one of the things we need often in that perplexity of life is a word of wisdom that gives us perspective and direction. Why were the churches jammed after 9-11? North America, Americans were suddenly faced with the unimaginable. They were under attack. Their impregnable military had been penetrated. The churches were flocked because people said, we need a word from outside of ourselves. We need perspective on this. We need wisdom. Larry King in his talk show holds night after night after night had rabbis, pastors and priests. Why? They wanted a word from outside. Is there a word from God? Somebody speak. We understand that. We understand that need for, for a voice to speak to us in those kinds of times. The fact that God has a mouth says to me that we have an infallible source of wisdom and direction for life. By contrast, the gods of the nations, the idols, where they are literal idols, or our 21st century urgents, they have no, there is no word from them. So in times of perplexity, you are left to your own devices. And that's not a good place to be in. Because so often we find ourselves completely unable to make sense of life. Secondly, it says God has eyes that can see. At the very least, that says to me that we are noticed. All of us, to a greater or lesser degree, have experienced sometime in life, from the irritation to the pain of just not being noticed. I remember several years ago, Sham and I had the opportunity to attend a wedding of people that were quite close to us. And, And throughout that time, almost no member of the family came anywhere near close to us. 
Those who knew us, even from a distance, kind of barely glanced at us and moved on. And when we came back home, one of the things Sham said to us, she said, Honey, the thing that hurt me the most was that it probably would have made no difference to this family whether we were there or not. Now, as I said, to a greater or lesser degree, we've all experienced that pain of not being noticed. Now, some of us can shrug it off. But if some of us have had the misfortune through no fault of our own, having been raised perhaps in a family, in in childhood for example, where we've often been ignored or set aside, something like that can be devastating. So there's another dimension of the fact that God has eyes that can see that blesses us. Philip Keller in a book called The 23rd, uh, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, gave some valuable insight. He said one of the things that a shepherd is always looking out for is sheep that are downcast. A downcast sheep was a sheep Usually a well-fed, heavy one that was lay down in a ground where it was, there was a little hump on the ground and the sheep would roll over onto its back. And when a sheep rolled over onto its back, it could not straighten itself up. And in that condition, physical processes got kicked into motion that would mean death. And immediately these downcast sheep became the object of vultures. And so a shepherd was always looking out for downcast sheep. <laughs> Isn't it good for you to know this morning that you are noticed? If nobody in this church notices you, you are noticed. <laughs> not only that, if you're downcast, if you find yourself on your back not able to get up, you have a God who has eyes to see. And He's on the lookout for you. Idols, they have no eyes. Not your 21st century ones, not the literal ones. You're on your own. At least you go away from your worship encounters with no assurance that you've been noticed. So write down this. God has eyes that can see, so we are noticed and watched over. And then the psalm implies that God has ears and can hear. Many of us look back over this year, one of the amazing phenomena globally this year has been what has come to be known as the Arab Spring. Large-scale people demonstrations and uprisings from Tunisia to Egypt to Libya and Syria. And it's not over yet. And you might remember when David Haskell was here, he gave us some further insight into how it all got started with that vegetable vendor in Tunisia, who because he was insulted and spat upon by a policeman, just was so desperate that he showed up at the police station. He wanted an audience with the superintendent. He just wanted to be heard. That's all. He couldn't do anything as a man. He just wanted to be heard. Many of us, we're not in that desperate a situation maybe, but we just want to be heard. We want somebody to understand what is on our heart. We want to be able to explain to people why we feel what we are feeling or what happened about this particular situation. We just want people to listen to us. God has ears and He hears. This great, awesome God we've been singing about is quite happy to Stop running the universe for a few moments. Not that he has to. To listen to you. So when you pray. Whether those prayers are answered right away. Or whether you have to persevere for a long time. In the face of unanswered prayer. You can be absolutely certain. That you were not ignored. And your prayers were heard. The individual circumstances of your life. Are important enough for the sovereign Lord of the universe. To pay undivided attention to. There is no idol on earth that can guarantee that. In fact, it won't happen. There is a very uh, ironical story in the Old Testament that graphically portrays this. 
One of the main idols uh, in Israel's contemporary people at that time was the god Baal. And there was a time when uh, Elijah, the prophet of the living God, and the prophets of this uh, god Baal were involved in a, in a, you know, let's see who's boss kind of confrontation. And so the uh, idol worshippers call upon Baal and all morning they call upon him. Nothing happens, there's no response. And Elijah, the prophet of God, uh, by the way, just know that because God has ears to hear, uh, our cause can never be ignored. And so the prophets of Baal uh, are um, shouting and crying out. And then Elijah says, and at noon Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he's a God. Either he's musing or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved down until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. They had no eyes to see, they had no ears to hear, no matter how loudly their worshippers shouted. Your idols are not able to hear a single plea. They cannot hear the cries of your heart. But you are absolutely assured that God has. And so your cause is never ignored. And then God has a nose and can smell. This one took a little bit of time to reflect on, to make sense of. You know. I mean, why does God need a nose? Huh? There's nothing in the Bible that is there by accident. I just began with how, why he gave us a nose. <laughs> many, many reasons, but... Uh, when I walk into my favorite restaurant, it's no more, unfortunately. Uh, powers that be have bought up all those sections on Young Street. Cuisine of India doesn't exist anymore there. But I would just walk in there and, and both the sight and especially the smell of freshly cooked tandoori chicken and chapatis was enough to just kind of get the juices flowing. And I was just anticipating what I was going to eat. I mean, when I knew I was going there for dinner, I just anticipated stepping in. Or imagine yourself sitting on your backyard about to eat your tuna fish sandwich when the, na- when the neighbor fires up the barbecue and the steak goes on it. You all know the smell, right? And you start salivating. Nomos is able to smell the fragrance of an offering. For us as human beings, it allows us to, it's a metaphor for appreciating what is said before us. And our appreciation gives pleasure to the person and blesses them. When my mother used to live with us, one of the things she loved doing was cook. I mean, ask her what she would like to do more than anything else. She would like a house full of people and she would be cooking from morning till evening. She would never get a chance to sit down and eat herself. But she would say, the more people eat more of what I make, the greater pleasure that I have. Our, her offering comes as a fragrance to us and it blesses her. Put all of that to God and you begin to get some idea, at least of what it means to me that my God has a nose. It means he appreciates what I give him. However imperfect this sermon is, it's the best I can give to him. However imperfectly you sang those songs, no matter how much your mind wandered periodic during that time, if that was your best, he accepts it. However much money you put on the plate, however little, because that's all you had, maybe you're out of work, He accepts it. God has a nose that smells the fragrance, and because He accepts our offering, we are blessed. You never have to worry that He's going to look down at you and say, is that all you could do? Didn't you see how much He does for me? Parents do that with kids, right? And you can be assured that he's never going to look at your offering and say, 98%? What happened to the other 2% in your math exam? 
God is the no, so what we offer him is always appreciated. You can never be sure with your idols. In fact, truth be told, your idols are never satisfied. They're always demanding more. And this is one of my favorite. God has hands and can feel. Lord John Ogilvie, a pastor at Presbyterian Church in Seattle many years, and then chaplain of the U.S. Senate as well. And as, as of two years ago, when we were on our sabbatical at the age of 81, still going strong, preaching and teaching, uh, he talked about a Middle Eastern shepherd. He had a, about a hundred odd sheep, and he knew every single one of his sheep individually. But what was absolutely amazing was the man was blind. This blind shepherd could tell every single one of his sheep apart just by rubbing his hands over their faces. All of those individual little bumps and scars and idiosyncrasies on each sheep became a mark of his special attention. The object, they were his marks of being owned by him and belonging to him. I thought to myself, can you just imagine God this morning, God having hands? Rubbing his face, hands, not over your face, but over your soul. He stops at every bump, every scar, every wound, and he says, that's because you belong to me. That's a mark of my ownership of you. That's my unique relationship with you. You are special. You are like nobody else. That's why that bump is there. And I know you because of that. Can any of your idols do that for you? They just inflict more scars. <laughs> and then I thought of the hands of a potter. So often in the Bible, God is spoken of as a potter. And what does he do with his two hands? One hand takes the clay that's dry. The other hand takes some water and moistens it. Then the wheels start spinning. And then here's where the hand's going to work. And they work together. The hand on the outside starts putting pressure. But as soon as he starts putting pressure on the hand on the outside, the other hand goes right into the center of that lump of clay. Because <laughs> you know why? If there was no left hand in the center, the pressure of the right hand would crush the clay. But because there is this hand in the left, the right hand only molds but never breaks. What a beautiful picture of God. He is able to sovereignly control the pressure of circumstances in our life because there's another hand at the center of our hearts, so the pressure will only mold us into His shape and never break us. Can your idols do that? No, no, no. They just keep putting pressure. There's no hand on the other side. The pressure comes from both sides and you're finished. God has hands and can feel so the pressure of life's circumstances mold us without breaking us. And then it says that he has feet and can walk. That tells me that the God that I serve is not a static God. You plonk an idol in one place, it stays there. God is on the move. He's dynamic. He goes before me. He prepares a way for me. When he says, follow me, he prepares a way so I can follow him. If you would only remember this, that means for a worshiper of the living God, when he or she wakes up in the morning, especially on a Monday morning, if they are aware of this, they can wake up with the, with the conscious awareness that while they have been sleeping, God has been at work on the move and He's already there before you. He's already in every meeting room you're going to be there. He's already with every person you're going to meet that particular day. Now, I don't say we always go to work like that, but we can. That's the point. We have a God who's on the move. He blazons a path for you and me to follow. The idols 
by contrast, they only show up at work when you carry them on your back. They don't carry you. You have to carry them. And when you show up at work, at work, they're not carrying you, they're demanding more. Power, pleasure, prestige, possessions. You show up at work, they're saying more, 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 more. They are burdens on your shoulder. But this God lifts you and He carries you. So, there's the assurance. God has feet and can walk, so no matter where we go, He is already there, waiting. So those are some of the implications. Now today's idols are not made in human form with human eyes and ears and hands. We learned last week that our idols are complicated. They are subversive and deceitful. They are complex in their interactions. We learned about deep idols and surface idols. We learned that the same deep idol of power can fuel and manifest itself as different surface idols. We've learned that the one surface idol of money can actually feed very different deep idols, whether it's power or acceptance or security. But this one thing they all have in common. They have mouths but cannot speak. No words of wisdom and direction in times of perplexity. No assurance that you are noticed and watched over, downcast or otherwise. The only guarantee that you are not heard, whether you cut yourself and shout from morning till night or not. No hands that can control the pressure of life's circumstances so they mold you without breaking you. No feet blazoning a path for you and me through life's perplexities to walk in. No assurances that they have gone before you wherever life takes you. That's what they have in common. And if we persevere in them, we reap the benefits or the fruit of a life without any of these things. I want to walk you through about six or seven statements now. All of them begin with this phrase, if you center your life and identity on. And I'm just going to pause for a few seconds after each one of them so you can reflect them. I, I couldn't find the source for this. I, I think it was Keller, but it was not in the book that I, that I recommended to you last week. If you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. Karen talked to us a little bit about that. If you center your life on your family and children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you will be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, you will develop deep depression. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. 
If you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you will be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore you will be a useless friend. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you have no purpose. And if you want any proof of that, just wait till elections roll around in any political setting. South of the border, it happens over 18-month period. We get it in four months and six-month slots. We are defined by our enemies. And then this one for the religious. If you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous and cruel. If you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. Can you see why God is jealous for us? He wants us to be delivered from this. This is why He says, worship me. (laughs) Because everything else devastates you. They only take, they don't give anything. Me, I have a mouth, I have eyes, I have ears, I have nose, I have hands, I have feet. And all that that means. And if that isn't enough, we haven't even got to the punchline yet. Because all this just has set us up for the single most important thing when it has to do with the issue of who we worship. Psalm 115 finishes with these words. Those who make them will be like them and so will all who trust in them. This is why God makes such a big deal of who we worship. Because of this inescapable principle that we become like the object of our worship. We become who or what we worship. If we worship a God who has a mouth, eyes, ears, hands, nose feet, then we too increasingly become a people like that. We become a people who have mouths that can speak words of wisdom to people in their times of perplexity and give direction to them. We become a people who have eyes and who notice people whom nobody has noticed. We become a people who can look for downcast sheep and go running to them and set them up on their, street, on their right side up. We have ears that are enabled little by little to hear the heart cry of people, to go below the surface and to look at what they're really saying. We become people who have noses that can appreciate what people are doing for us, whether it's a little child with their first drawing that they've made in their class, or someone who does something special for us, and we become a people who are grateful and we say thank you. We become a people whose hands are increasingly able to affirm to people in the midst of their scars and their trials and difficulties that they are uniquely owned and loved by God. We become a people who can limit the pressure or help limit or counter the pressures of life so they mold the person rather than destroy them. And we become a people who have hands and feet who can walk before people and give them a path to walk. We become people who are sought out in the latter years of our life because others want to go where we have gone. 
We become life givers like God. But this glorious prospect has a deadly counterpart to it. You know what the deadly counterpart is like? Is that if we worship gods who have no mouth, no eyes, no ears, guess what? We become like that too. We become increasingly a people that have no eyes to notice anybody but ourselves. We lose the capacity to hear what is in people's hearts and respond only at a superficial level. Our hands are unable to feel anybody else's anguish or pain. We, and there is no way we limit the pressures of life. We add to their pressures. And we have nothing to say to them in times of perplexity. And near the end of our life, very few people are seeking us out to walk in our footsteps. And as far as our noses are concerned, forget appreciating what is done for us. We focus on what has not been done for us. We become a grumbling rather than a thankful people. Is that what you want? Can you see the implications? See, we become either life givers like God or life quenchers like the idols. A couple of illustrations of this. In, in, in his book, Counterfeit God, Keller talks about a, a columnist, Cynthia Heimel, writing in the 1980s, a little piece called Why Celebrities Become Monsters in the, in the Village Voice. He says, the minute a person becomes a celebrity is the minute he or she becomes a monster. They, and she referred to three well-known Hollywood stars whom she had known before they became famous. They had been once perfectly pleasant human beings. Now they have become supreme beings and their wrath is awful. Under the pressure of fame and celebrity, all their character flaws and miseries become twice as bad as they were before. This is the idolatry of fame. And lest we tend to dismiss this as, well, of course, those are the weird ones in Hollywood. Let me show you how this can work in the average person's life as well. Keller talks about a woman named Anna, whose dream was to have children. Very close to the kind of idol that you were talking about, Karen. And so she got married, and contrary to any medical expectations, she had two children. But the dream didn't come true. Because the, this drive to have absolutely perfect children robbed her of any capacity to enjoy the children she actually had. Being overprotective, overanxious, and fearful, she exercised so much control over their life that they ended up resenting it and made them miserable. And both of them ended up disappointing her. She crushed them. They disappointed her. Because they became an idol. That's what happens. We become like the very things that we worship. Life givers or life quenchers. Therefore, we need to do what we learned last week. Idols cannot simply be removed. They have to be replaced. They have to be replaced by the living God. Otherwise you just move it to another idol. And last week we learned how Satan is quite happy for us to get rid of one idol so long as another one works. And this is not just some vague belief in some God out there. Those faraway gods do nothing. We'll talk about that faraway gods and nearby gods next week. No, no, this has to be an, an encounter with a living God that is up close and personal. Now how does that happen? 
And for that I need to take you to the New Testament, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And again, for those who may not know the Bible very well, the New Testament begins with four books that are called the Gospels. And the word Gospel simply means good news. And there are four pictures of the, of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, written by four different authors, four different slants to it. The fourth of these Gospels, called the Gospel of John, is very different from the others. It is a more a theological reflection on the life of Jesus. And at the very beginning, John refers to Jesus by a very peculiar name called the Word. In John, in John chapter 1 in the 14th verse it says, And the Word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, why would he call Jesus the Word? Who, who would name their son or daughter Word, right? It's, it's, it's a translation of a Greek word called Logos, and it doesn't mean anything to us, but it was very significant in those days. Uh, Greek philosophers wrestled with a couple of very important questions. One of the questions they wrestled with was, what, are, what is the universal principle that gives meaning to the particulars? Life is full of particulars. There's people, there's chairs, there's cars, there's creation, there's sun. They're all, they're all particulars. Is there any universal that gives meaning to all these particulars? Well, they said yes, and that principle they call the Logos. The Logos is that principle that gives, that is the universal principle that gives meaning to the particulars. Some others wrestled with another question, what kind of life should we live that will truly satisfy us? The answer to that question was also the same principle called Logos. The, the principle of Logos contained within it the secret of the kind of life that will bring us true satisfaction. Well, John, in calling Jesus the Word, says, uh-huh, they're not principles. <laughs> the, the, the universal that gives meaning to all the particulars in life, from my work, to my family, to my calling, to my neighborhood, to my hobby, to everything, the universal that gives meaning to these particulars is not a principle, but a person, Jesus. The answer to the question, what kind of a life brings ultimate satisfaction, is not a principle, it's a life that was actually lived by this person. And by the way, he also says to people from a Hebrew background, uh, this person is none other than the living God. His glory is the same as that person's glory. And you know, you read the Gospels, you will find that Jesus literally lived out every single one of those dimensions of God that Psalm 115 implies. Did he have a mouth that could speak wisdom? (laughs) I mean, everybody was amazed. Where did this carpenter's son learn to speak like this? Even the people who tried to trap him finally had to give up. You know, Like the tennis matches where the opponent sometimes claps because the play was so good. You know? He had a mouth that could speak wisdom and direction. Did he have eyes to notice the unnoticed? Yeah, right on the cross in the face of excruciating pain. He said, my mother, she's alone. And he said, woman, here's your son. He will look after you. Did he have ears to hear? On the way to Jerusalem, with a whole crowd around him, in a week all that would change, but at that moment everybody was celebrating this Jesus. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of... He heard one cry, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He heard the cry of a blind man and he stopped. He heard the cry of a derelict right next to him on the second cross. Lord, have mercy on me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. He had years to hear Did he have hands? He touched lepers. And he touched not the outside, he touched the inside as well. Because lepers had no no human touch ever. But his hands touched them.
Did he have a nose that smelt? You bet. When a woman of ill repute comes and breaks an alabaster box of ointment on his feet, it was a fragrant offering to Jesus while everybody else was angry at her and shouted at her. He said, leave her alone. <laughs> She's done this for me. And Everywhere this gospel is preached, that story will be told. And did he have feet? He walked steadfastly to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to be crucified so that you and I could actually come back to a God whose glory we have assailed. And so we deserved God's wrath. But instead we receive mercy because this God incarnate in Jesus had a mouth that spoke, ears that heard, eyes that saw, nose that smelt, hands that felt, feet that walked all the way to the cross with those hands and feet crucified to be raised again from the dead so that you and I through him might put God back in his rightful place upon the throne and then begin to receive all of these amazing blessings that he's promised to give to us. You stand for the benediction, please. The blessing that I have for you is what I have desired for myself, that you will just have a holy horror of being life quenchers and an irresistible desire to become life givers. And so may you worship the living God. Go in Jesus' name.